Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cork and Entertainment Show today on this lovely, lovely day. Super excited to be here, as always. Um, for those of you watching the video version, you're probably looking at me right now thinking, oh, he's wearing the same shirt he was last time. Oh, uh, well, that's because I am. Uh, we're recording two episodes back to back today, which is super, super exciting. Um, uh, we just recorded what uh, we were uh, episode 10 and 11. We're recording those back to back. You're watching episode 11 right now. Um, yeah, so it's been a fun day. Lot, you know, lots of recording, and um, it's gonna be a lot of fun. And um, so, yeah, we'll just get right down to it. Uh, no more uh, beating around the bush. Uh, today, I'm super excited. This is a really, really uh, fun episode today. Uh, it's actually, I think, our longest episode yet, just because uh, it's also our biggest panel we have we've had yet. So the more people you got, the longer you know think you kind of uh, you kind of get rolling. So um, today we're going to be joined by uh, my uncle Donnie Bowes, who is the artistic director of the Upper Canada Playhouse uh, up in uh, uh, Toronto, and. Um, Joined by two of his friends, uh, uh, Jesse Collins, uh, who who um, who uh, is very involved with uh, theater and um, has worked with Donnie for years, and he's also now the artistic director of the the Orville uh, Opera House. And uh, we'll also be joined by uh, Marshall Button, who is the artistic director of the Capitol Theater, uh, which is located in Moncton. So very exciting show today. Uh, I'm I'm I had a great time just listening to these guys go back and forth. It's like, I even said to them later on in the episode, I'm like, when's your podcast beginning? Cause that would just be so, so much fun to watch. Um, so yeah, so we'll be discussing a lot of their theater, uh, uh, theatrical backgrounds, which, you know, you could do up a, a memoir of what they've done and uh, <laughs> they've certainly been through it all. And um, we'll, we'll also be giving our thoughts on, um, were some of the best writers in the entertainment business. Um, we we kind of discussed a little more uh, on, on the theatrical side, but um, definitely feel free to leave your thoughts um, for those of you watching. Just who's your favorite writer in general? Because there's you know there, there's a whole world of writers out there, you know. And um, and then we'll also be giving our thoughts on uh, what makes a sequel superior to its predecessor, and. Um, what are uh, what are some sequels who are better uh, that are better than the original? And uh, we'll just be giving our thoughts on those, given uh, given some of our favorites. And um, yeah, I'll just stop. Uh, I'll stop uh, uh, rambling on here because, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the show, guys. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Corkin Entertainment Show. I'm your host, Frankie Corkin, and I am joined by probably the biggest panel of guests yet on the show. Uh, starting off uh, with uh, to my left right here is Mr. Jesse Collins, the uh, artistic director of the or oh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to. Aurelia. Aurelia. There we go. I, I kept saying Orvilla. I'm like, oh, my God, why? It's not that like uh, opera house. Uh, so Jesse Collins, great to see you here. Hello. Uh, we have um, Mr. Marshall Button, the artistic director of the Capitol Theater located in Moncton. Very nice to have you here, Marshall. Yeah, former artistic director of the Opera House Bar in Newcastle. 
Ah, there we go. Look at that for all <laughs> for all your local uh, uh, listeners there. And then uh, right here on the bottom of me, there is uh, a man who also just happens to be my uncle and who kind of he helped kickstart my theater ventures. Uh, Mr. Donnie Bowes, the artistic director of the Upper Canada Playhouse. Uh, Donnie, great to see you. <laughs> Yeah, great to be here. I, I haven't been home in two years. Yes, that's right. Years I have not been home. I'm planning to go home for Easter. Easter is going to make up for the last two Christmases. So I'm very excited about that. No, well, there we go. So that would have been uh, December 2019 cause, because uh, uh, that year yeah. then COVID hit and just that's the whole. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All of that. So I have to ask you, Donnie. So, I mean, like, you know, years ago, like for my first theater audition, did you ever imagine in 10 years that you would be a guest on my theater podcast did that no, ever cross your mind no absolutely not and i always feel so guilty if i if you can see i'm going to push away you can see three posters behind me can you see those oh, oh there we go yeah for those you watching the video version yeah exactly and uh, these are these are all uh, all posters of shows that you've been doing and just because of where we are in the time frame of where we are i haven't seen one of them it, it's always at a time when i'm not home so i'm really really looking forward to seeing um, all the stuff that you're doing, Frankie. I mean, clearly you have the Miramichi uh, in the palm of your hand. They're even, all these businesses now are even putting you in, uh, in their ads to sell their <laughs> product. And that's, you know, when you're, you you know, have a, a good deal of notoriety when people want to see you on the, on camera. But um, yeah, I remember that night you wanted to audition for your high, for your teacher and uh, you thought you might be interested in that kind of thing. Up to that point, your mom had been telling me that you had been doing stand-up routines. Oh, the, yeah. And uh, you know, what, what, what is that late night host um, that you like? Uh, oh, uh, Stephen Colbert. Absolutely. And uh, we're holding forth on all of that. So it was just a matter of, uh, of shifting from that to, uh, to, to acting. So I think, didn't we pull monologues by Jules Pfeiffer, I think? Small oh, monologue. it was something about a, a book. It was something, it, hey, I read a book. It was some yeah, sort of monologue. Well, yeah, I can't it remember. Was Jules Pfeiffer monologues. And, and I said, well, learn a couple of those and go in and do those, which you did, I guess. Eh? I mean, yeah, you know, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, from there, I guess it just, uh, it just mushroomed from there. I think you were in almost every, playing the lead in almost every show that uh, they've done up there and now starting your own company and all of that. You're, uh, you, uh, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it certainly exploded in your end, which is you, great. You've created a monster, Donnie. I must well, say exactly. you have created a monster. <laughs> yeah, know. You're the best of both worlds in lots of ways. I mean, it's nice to be able to um, keep the wolf away from the door in terms of having you know, uh, money, you're having a job to pay bills, right? No, exactly, because we all need that. <laughs> exactly. And uh, what we've talked about before on, uh, on uh, you know, on Messenger, the whole thing of uh, whatever happens to be going on that, that really bothers people in terms of whether it's the war or the pandemic or whatever. But basically to have that kind of, um, have that kind of talent that you have, it, it just, uh, it adds a whole a whole lot of you know more things to your life right i mean it mm. opens up a whole bunch of things and uh and you're just having a blast i i think it's fantastic all the stuff you're doing oh absolutely and i mean like you know it's um that's one downside of the pandemic is that it's taken a lot and it's given it back to us for a brief time but in a in a you know uh in a different kind of uh, uh capacity and then it takes away again so but i mean luckily i think we're on the right track slowly getting back to normal but uh so tell me a little bit about all your history jesse we'll start with you so i mean like you know how all of your guys history you guys have been kind of through uh th through a lot together 
Well, we've all, we've all of us known each other a long time, and it and it's uh, it's amazing, Marshall. You mentioned a second ago about just the years that go by and the travels that you have and the places we see and everything else. It's one of the most glorious parts about this business. It's it's one of the challenges of the business, and and one of the best things as well uh, that you get around quite a bit. Donnie mentioned that you know he was a, a late starter. He started in his in his in his late twenties. Uh, I was actually an early starter. I started when I was 19 and Donnie and I met on, on, on a show when he was, when he was 28 and I was 18 or 19 and uh, became friends then and have been dear friends ever since. And uh, um, you don't know when you start something, my, and my, my journey started not unlike yours, Frankie. I, I actually went to university. I went to the University of Toronto and I, I went to university thinking I, you know, I knew I wanted to be an actor or a singer or whatever I wanted to do at that time. But a writer who lived in the little town that I grew up in, who my brother worked for, a wonderful novelist named Timothy Finley, Canadian novelist, he, uh, he and his partner, Bill Whitehead, suggested to me that it might not be a good idea to get off the bus from Cannington and, and announce that I was going to be uh, an entertainer in the city of Toronto, that I might want to get you know some way to acclimatize myself to the environment. So they suggested I go to university, which I did. I went for a year. I did a show there. An actor in the show who was going to turn pro invited an agent to come see it. And the agent gave me their card. I went and saw them. And they suggested that I might be able to, I remember they gave me a, they had a, a blank spot on the little contract they had that said, if you earn this much money in the year, then we'll have to renegotiate or become, you know, firm up our agreement somehow. And he, he kind of looked at it and he wrote $6,000 in it. And I thought, oh my God, this guy behind the desk thinks there's a possibility I might make $6,000 over the course of a year. Uh, how can I, how can I say no to this business? He's still so, right. So I had, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I didn't make it. I don't think I made it, but, uh, but I went, but I, uh, I, uh, then I had the pleasure of going to my, my parents is the only one of four kids that went off to university and be able to announce at the supper table that I decided not to go back because I wanted to become an actor. I might as well <laughs> told my dad I was going to be a mime. Like he just, they, <laughs> I remember you could hear the forks and knives scraping on the table as the silence just hung there when I made this announcement. But anyways, I said I was going to take a year off university. I took the year off. I've been here ever since. It's been the long, it's been a 40 year, year off that I've had. And, uh, I don't suppose there's any chance I'm going back to university now, but never say never. So that's <laughs> no, that. exactly. That's how I got started. And then just, you know, the, the, the normal cycle, theater, a little bit of film and television, back to the theater, a little bit of film and television, back to the theater and, and uh, just keep poking away and knocking away at it, hoping I get it right eventually. That's Hope it. for the best. I mean, like, you know, you've been in the business for how long now? So like, uh, you know what I mean? You must be doing something right. <laughs> I guess, I guess, or, or have, or have uh, lost the ability to do anything else. No, you know what? I don't have one cynical thing to say about it. And it's, uh, it's been terrifically good to me. And, and, um, you know, I, and I know so many people that, uh, you know, you've had success it now, you know, people have different ways of measuring success, I suppose. And mine is that as long as I feel engaged and I enjoy what I do and listen, it's a challenge. It's, it's a very, very difficult business for a lot of people. Oh, hundred percent. It can tap you on the shoulder and tell you to get out, you know, lots and lots of times. Sometimes it's important to listen to that. And other times you just got to persevere and, and keep going. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've, I've loved every minute of it. I don't think I'd change a thing. No, well, they're absolutely, 
and I mean, that's great that you never gave up. You know what I mean? Like that's gotta be, I mean, like, you know, some people, you know, it's so easy to give up, especially in that kind of a business, you know what I mean? Where like, you know, you might be going from job to job to job. It might be very easy for someone to say, you know what, I'm just going to go work at a coffee shop or something, you know? But I mean, like, you know, people like you guys, you've kept it going. You never gave up. And uh, so uh, Marshall, uh, you, you come from uh, Dalhousie. And now you're uh, the artistic director of the Capitol Theater in Moncton. What 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 brought you from Dalhousie to to Moncton, or, or like how was your journey? You know, it's interesting. I think we had, there's a thread among all four of us on this panel that we come to uh, what is often seen as a big city profession from very small places. Uh, all of us, you know, could say we're from small towns. Hmm. Uh, in Jesse's case, I think it's a village. Uh, but you know, the, Dal- <laughs> yeah, the, the Dalhousie of my youth uh, was a, a town, but it was a booming town because of the paper mill. But certainly uh, as a child, I didn't have a sense of what an actor was, although everyone that knew me as a kid, when I went off to be an actor, it didn't surprise them. They said, oh yeah, that's the actor or whatever. They kind of had pegged me for that, but I didn't even know that that was a job you could have when I was a kid. I mean, we had one really one television station I remember for a few years and it was the French from Carleton, Quebec. We would pick that up and eventually we got that one English channel to the point when I went to high school and then only cable television came in. So, the sh- you know, we'd watch the hockey games. Uh, I didn't watch a lot, but there'd be shows like Take 30 or and then there would be like Forest Rangers. And I figure, OK, there's kind of entertainment. But really, I remember as a kid when the professional theater started coming through town, and there was a tour that our, all, all of us were friends with this guy, Walter Learning, who started Theatre New Brunswick. And when these shows would come to town, you, you, they, you'd walk through the door and they'd hand you a program and you'd see, well, there's a guy like Dan Brown or some actor. And you, you'd read the, the, the thing about this bio and he would say, well, you know, he starred in this TV show and he, you know, and he, but he's also a fuller brush salesman or whatever, like they had a story to tell. But then you got to think, well, these are people who get paid to do this. And I think like you, Frankie, I, I had a, you know, I was influenced in school. I, I, we had an excellent drama teacher. Uh, we could actually take drama as a subject in high school, but I, I did a lot of plays and uh, I had a sense that I, I should perhaps do this. So I went to university and finished a degree at a place called Bishop's University where they had a, a drama program. There was a professional summer festival and uh, I hadn't finished my degree yet when I was offered a job at, uh, in London, Ontario. And this dates me here, but you're talking January of 1980 uh, to appear in a play called Equus. And I didn't know anything about, I mean, I had been at Bishops and I met a few, you know, through my teachers and such. But here I am sharing a stage with William Hutt. And uh, you probably, it doesn't mean anything to you, but if, if we had which the United Kingdom have, he would be Sir William Hutt. I mean, he was a renowned actor. He was a, a war, he had a bit of pilot during the war. And uh, some of the also great, you know, luminaries of Canadian theater. And I was like one of the horses in Equus. But what you did was you sat on these bleachers and watched the play unfold. And then you had your little parts that came in. So I think I learned more sitting in those bleachers watching these professional actors perform than I did in my three years at university leading up to that. And then, you know, as the three of us have done, I just at one point decided when I was uh, finished university, I was probably about 20 or 21. And I said, and this was great advice I had from a teacher is the so-called cast your stone in the water, where I decided I was going to be a professional actor, meaning that if someone wanted me to do that, 
they there had to be a deal. And you know what? It could have been a, a bottle of wine or a bottle of scotch, but there had to be an exchange <laughs> for my services. Like it was not worth nothing. I and and since that time, I've not, never done it for fun. Now it's always fun to do it, but I don't do it for fun. And I think that's no matter where you live and 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 how you get to it. At a certain point, if you respect it as a profession, meaning this is how I'm going to earn my living then you've given yourself a chance. And I think like a lot of the three of us or the four of us probably, you know, you've had advice from people to say, you know, well, maybe you should get your teaching degree or maybe you should um, get yourself this other thing so you have something to fall back on. But I had figured out when I was really young that, geez, if I put a lot of energy into that thing I'm supposed to fall back on, it's going to compromise what I really want to do, which is to work in the theater. And I will fall back the first kind of setback that I have. No, well, there we go. Just so you, uh, there's always a backup plan. You know what I mean? So it's not like, oh, geez, this didn't work out. Well, what am I going to do now? Now I got to spend the next, you know, while or so trying to figure out uh, what I'm going to do. And uh, I got no income coming in uh, 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 kind of thing. Um, what uh, so how would you compare like, you know, like a theater in like, you know, uh, Dalhousie area uh, uh, between Moncton, where you are now? Where uh, How would you compare? I mean, I mean, like, you know, how much theater was was or, or like uh, opportunities, I should say, in Dalhousie compared to Moncton? Like, how would you compare them both? Well, or are they even comparable? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, like you, I after I finished university, I did go back and they used to have these work programs like uh, Opportunities for Youth or LIP or these various federal programs where you could work for the summer. So when I got one and I started a summer theater program. And I remember my dad who everything... I sort of, you know, approach in life. I can relate to something my dad said to me at one point, but he came to the show and, you know, we, lots of people, you know, enough people came, but it was pretty clear to him and to everybody there. He said to me, like, when he knew what I wanted to do for a living, he said, Marsh, you gotta have the population. And the difference is in terms of talent, talent is everywhere. I've been saying for a number of years, I live in a pretty dense neighborhood close to downtown Moncton, I could go and knock on every door in my neighborhood. And by the time I'm done, there's enough talent within my these few blocks that I could put together one of the best shows you've ever seen, you know, because someone is going to be a fiddle player or someone's going to be able to dance or someone is a great storyteller. And if I have the time to figure that out and take that talent, and put it together, talent is everywhere, but it's what you do with it. But in order for one to make a living at this as you know donnie's been able to do so well you know certainly in morrisburg is to get people to pay their 30 40 bucks to sit there so you collect that money and you turn that into the business which is the show business that we're part of and that's the ultimate difference is yeah there there are talented people but uh they're just not enough of them there and unlike you know morrisburg which is a tiny place that has a proximity to Ottawa and Cornwall and other centers in the U.S. and certainly Montreal, where you draw from, Dalhousie. There's nothing like that. You got to go, you know, the, like Miramichi is a populated place compared to Dalhousie, and that's that's almost two hours away, right? So mm. it, it uh, you just couldn't make a go of it there, I think, uh, unless you were subsidized, which of course we all know that many theater companies are, and then we can get into that that conversation but um that'd be a whole episode in and of itself <laughs> yeah and in terms you know of audiences 
uh, Dalhousie is probably the best audience in the world and Moncton is not far behind as is Cornwall, Ontario, where, where Donnie is. There's, there's great audiences everywhere, of course. No, definitely. There's always demand for theater everywhere, everywhere you go. So, I mean, and, um, so Donnie, you, you come from, I mean, like, obviously you come from here. I think, you know, you and I know each other a little bit, I think, don't we? Yeah. You know, it's not like he's my mom's brother or anything. Uh, (laughs) So feel free to go in depth. Like, uh, like, uh, what was it like? I mean, like, you know, obviously coming here, Miramichi, small town, you went to Fredericton. It, I think it was St. Thomas you went to, and then off to Toronto. How was that whole, I, I, well, I, I mean, like, you know, was it scary where you're like, oh my God, I'm moving to a big well, town. Like, what's it like? I mean, some of the things that Marsha went through when he was younger, I went through as well. And that is um, uh, uh, the main reason that Walter Learning founded Theatre New Brunswick, uh, which I understand is not at all like that model right now, was that it would it would take professional theater straight across the, the province. So um, when I was teaching school in Camelton, for example, whenever it would come through, it would be just like magic coming through. And, uh, and like Marshall said, you would read the program and identify the actors that were on the stage were always in one of the very, very few Canadian TV shows at the time, you know? And um, uh, so, but what happened to me is I, 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 I don't know if you choose the business or the business chooses you. I mean, I went to, uh, when I went to St. Thomas University, very, very quickly, I understood that uh, there was a, a, a drama society there or whatever. And then I did a show there and then really spent most of my next three years doing that. And being a small university, uh, a lot of the professors knew why my essays were being passed in late and all of that. And probably it would have been, <laughs> you know, they, I really should have been failed towards the end. But uh, I devoted all my attention to that and um, then decided that I would take a teaching job in Campbellton just to pay off my student loan for a year or two. But but I loved it up in Campbellton. And um, uh, especially when skiing season started, I stayed there for four years. But speaking of theater, we did theater, you know, in the community as well. Uh, you know, the people wanting to, uh, I can't remember what the name of the theater company was, but but I, uh, I worked with them for a while. And then I had to make this big choice around the same time. I think, you know, maybe Marshall was doing the same thing. We ended up doing, I guess, our first professional gig together with Theater Bunch of Young Company, I think. Mm-hmm close to one of the first ones and so Marshall and I started basically at the same time and I remember you don't remember this but where we used to live on Falconer Street um, I remember Marshall visited one day and we're sitting in the kind of the little you know living room or something there and uh, basically it was discussion I think back on now I don't know Marshall remembers but he was saying that that uh, he was starting a a, a, you know a couple of different companies and uh, basically what he's been doing successfully ever since and um, uh, wanted to know if, if I wanted if to stay and become part of that. And I, and I decided that for whatever reason, I just thought I wanted to go away somewhere. And uh, I guess that was Toronto. I'd never been to Toronto in my life. And I just decided that if I was gonna figure out whether or not this business was meant for, meant for me, uh, I wanted to go somewhere else, which is what I did. The, the great irony here is that when I first went out, I ended up working almost constantly because it was when it was before the time of Cats and all the big, huge musicals. So all the small musicals in town, all they needed somebody who could sing a little bit and, you know, maybe dance if you stood behind a good dancer, but somebody that could play character parts because I could play five character parts and save them all this money. So I ended up doing musicals for about three or four years, not as a musician or a dancer, but uh, as an actor. And then Cats came. And so that whole employment opportunity went out the window because you had to be able to do <laughs> everything really well, right? Um, so um, so what, when, when, when I went to Toronto, 
uh, the best thing that happened for me was that I ended up, um, I hit the ground running. I had never been there, but I ended up in a musical, a musical, I think it was Mame, it was called. And it was the best thing to do because there was about 15 or 20 people associated with that. So if you're with a show for six or seven months, uh, you get after a while to know where everything is. Like, oh, you, you know, you, you, you know where the union office is, where they're having auditions. Uh, oh, so-and-so is doing a musical over here, audition for that. And it really kind of got me started. Uh, but at no time, and I remember going home sometimes at Christmas time saying, so you have a, a show lined up in the new year. And I didn't. But at no time, um, I think maybe because I knew I had teaching to fall back on. I think maybe that was one thing. But when you're committed to doing something, it wasn't about... Um, of course, everybody starts off wanting to be a star in some way, shape, or form. Oh, and 100%. That, yeah. In that sense, I'm certainly behind these two guys in a million ways. <laughs> but my point is, is that we have all arrived at the point now where I remember, and Frankie, you know the uh, the relative Wendy, the Carol's, uh, Carol's daughter, Wendy. Oh, yes, absolutely. I yeah. can't remember her man's name. But I will uh, Jeff. Yeah, I only met him one time a couple of Christmases ago, and he said, yeah, so you're the aspiring actor. And I'm thinking... No, I'm not an aspiring actor. If you had talked to me 30, 40 years ago, you, you know, you're aspiring maybe to get a CBC show. Well, fine, that's fine. But now <laughs> I just spent the past 40 years of my life as a working theater professional, meaning that you will not see my name in lights. And I'm not making an excuse for this at all. It, it's that this is what I do for a living. For the first 25 years, it was as an actor. Marshall gave me my first opportunity to actually direct when he was the artistic director here at the theater that I'm continuing on with. Mm. And uh, and um, uh, and and so therefore, I I started to lose interest in acting. I uh, for for a stupid reason at the beginning, I was just packing your bags to go off to somewhere like Calgary for six weeks was fun. At one point, now it wasn't anymore. I kind of resented doing that, and um, and then also because of the opportunities that Marshall gave me directing here, uh, I corrected one big thing that as an amateur I had in my mind. I thought, how can I? I directed some shows at St. Thomas and there were big hits and all that stuff, but I knew yeah. the difference between, uh, you know, a captive audience and not, but I always thought, how could I be a director? Like who am I to tell all these experienced actors how to act? And I realized it wasn't about that. A, a director's job was to know what the vision they had for a scene to express that to an actor and say, okay, you go for it. Now, you know, you contribute to this vision and I'll tell you what I like or don't like. So I had that wrong. The other thing I had wrong as an actor was when I first started out, if you're in a scene, how can I make myself seen? How can I make myself known in this scene? And I realized soon afterwards as a director that it's the opposite. You have to realize when do you contribute to the scene and how you can back off and let what's really going on happen, you know? Exactly. Instead well, of stealing the spotlight when it doesn't exactly. contribute anything to the actual story kind of thing. Exactly. So basically, I consider myself in the past 40 years to be a working professional. Uh, that when I was in the business for 10 years, the first time I worked for Marshall here, there was a job, a teaching job in Ottawa. I thought, okay, I've been in the business 10 years. Things are going fine. Money isn't a priority for me, really. Uh, I'm going to take the job and see what I think. Well, after the first day, I hated it. But I stuck it out for the whole year. And if there was anything that said to me, you know, you, you've just left the profession that you were meant to be in, uh, it was that. So um, as I say, when, when I used to tell, you know, mom and dad and everybody, well, I don't know where, I don't know, you know, what's happening after Christmas. I was never in any doubt whatsoever that something would happen. And what I always say to... Um, there's a couple of things. Once in a while, we we'll have a young actor come down playing a, a, a part in something and somebody will say, a relative will come and see it. And they'll say, so do you think he has any future in the business? And I always say the business will tell that person that. 
You know, mm -hmm. they'll decide what they want. Do they want to really produce good theater at home and do other things at the same time? That's great. Do they want to go off and, and you know, leave and do, if you're single, it's, it's, it's helpful to do that. You just have to worry about yourself. Um, but whatever that is, um, a person has to actually do it. And uh, so that's what I did in terms of, of leaving, going to Toronto and opening up a world for myself and decided that that's what I want to do. Um, or if it's what you're doing, Frankie, which is creating a whole scene on Miramichi from what you do, you become a, a, a star there, right? Uh, <laughs> and, 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 no, but all the things that you're doing, it's important to do what you want to do. Where, wherever that leads you, I have no idea. But I always would say to a young actor, the, the allure of this business is that when you get up in the morning, you have no idea where your career is going to be that night. The day I got up and I didn't know Marsha was going to phone me before the day was out, hey, why don't you come to Morrisburg and be in the show? Uh, somebody had left the show for whatever reason. And I went down and, well, look, I mean, it's opened up this whole old world for me. So <laughs> it's always been a fascinating business, not only from the theater point of view, but uh, just as a way to live your life. And uh, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't change it for a minute. It's never been about money. It's never been about fame. It's about doing what you were meant to do. I think, and then meeting all these vagabonds in the process. <laughs> and, and we're all we're all connected in so many ways. Later on, when we talk about Norm Foster, there is literally uh, um, a connection that each of us has had to that man. And, and, uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's a large business to be in, but it's very small at the same time. Mm. So um, anyway, that's that's how I got to be uh, in a tiny little office on a rainy day in Morrisburg. No, there you go. I, and I mean, like, you know, some people wouldn't, want to go to work on a Sunday. Oh, Sunday, I'm just going to stay home. But like, I'm like, you know, you love it enough. You're like, yeah, I'm going. You know what I mean? So course, what I'm working on today have nothing to do with theater. I mean, since I've become the AD here, I talk, you know, look, working on budgets and finding accommodations for actors. And uh, nowadays when you cast shows, it's not just who's going to be the talented actor. It's okay. How can I accommodate this number of people in a small town? It's no, exactly. That's the, that's really the, 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 well, the, we also work together. We worked together in the same season last year. We're going to work together in, in other capacities in the season this year. It just goes on and on and on the people, you know, we're going to work, we're going to work, we're going to work together on a Norm Foster play. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, you, you dance with them that brought you and that, and that, and that's pretty well. It's uh, that's pretty well how, how it's turned out. Got a well, um, uh, what do they say? Well, uh, oil machine. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like a well, uh, oil, uh, oil machine. Which you guys got there? That's yeah, that. Yeah. That's something pretty. Uh, and um, so, so for some, so, some of my viewers who are fans of Trailer Park Boys, uh, Jesse and uh, Marshall actually worked with uh, the uh, late great uh, John Dunsworth, who of course played Mr. Leahy on Trailer Park Boys. Um, what was it like? Because uh, uh, Jesse, you work with him. It was uh, you guys did Romeo and Juliet in Halifax. What? 30 or so years ago, uh, even, even, you know, it might be more, it was, I think it was about 1980, 83 or somewhere around there. We did what we did. We did, uh, Tom Kerr was the artistic director. There it was his first year. Marsha, you remember those days when all that was changed around. On, and, on uh, and last year, I, I assume. Uh, no, no, he was there for about three or four years before then he, then he went off to, he, you know, he, he, uh, he had quite a career, but I'll tell you what he did do with that. He, he very aggressively, went after his programming and he did uh, he did West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet and repertory, which is, you know, I mean, a lot of people know that West Side Story is is based on the story of Romeo and Juliet. And it's a, when I think back to the size and the scale of that production at a regional theater, the size of Neptune Theater in Halifax, I'll tell you what, you've got a 
pretty big set of cojones to try and pull that one off. I, Donna, you mentioned, you know, we all deal with it all the time is this concept of having to accommodate where actors and musicians and all the professionals that you bring together to do your programming, where they live in your town, when they, when, when, when the, when the circus comes to town and how do we accommodate them? Where do they sleep? Um, I keep thinking back to how they managed to pull that one off. The casts were, they were huge. They were huge. And we were there for twice the amount of time. So it's like, you know, every once in a while, all of us will do something big on our seasons. Let's do a six hander, you know, and it's, you kind of do that, you know, one out of your three or four shows or something. Well, this was, this was two of his shows carrying these massive casts working in repertory. So the way the rep, the way he did the rep on that was very interesting is he did one week of West Side, and then we do one week of Romeo and Juliet, and then we do one week of West Side, one week of Romeo and Juliet. He didn't cross cast the leads. I was doing Tony and West Side Story, but I did bits and pieces. I was, you know, I I was just a spear carrier in in Romeo and Juliet, and and um, Ian Deacon did Romeo, and so. But Johnny Dunsworth, and it was funny, Frankie, when you mentioned it, I I, in, I I forget. So, he, you know, here you, people have a lot of thoughts about John Dunsworth, kind of actor he was. He moved effortlessly through classical theater and musical theater in West Side Story. Mm. And he was terrific in, in, in both. He played the the cop that is the, the assistant to the detective in the West Side and all and, and which... Anyways, he, he was just a wonderful guy, but one of the most fascinating people. I mean, I didn't see him again for four years and, you know, and yet I have a very strong impression of, of the kind of person he, he was. He, um, I always remember one of the things that strike you, Marshall, I don't know if you ever rode in his car, but uh, he lived in Halifax. And so I was from out of town in the case that we'd go somewhere if we were going out or doing something and we get in his car. His car was such a piece of work. The inside was literally filled. You know, you'll see the pictures of sometimes these you know, old New York lawyers and they've got an office that, that not unlike my play, the thing books are stacked and they're sort of peeking out through these, you know, letters and piles and stacks of paper. That was his car? Car was like that. His car, <laughs> the back was all the thing. He had some odd hood ornament that was from something else. I don't, I want to say a Rolls Royce, but whatever it was that he tacked on the front of this thing, on the hood of this thing, it was a piece of work getting in Johnny Dunsworth's car. And, uh, but just as warm and friendly and lovely as a guy could be. So I've got nothing but, uh, but good memories about the time that we spent together. We had a lot of fun and a lot of laughs in those days. Wow. And Marshall, you actually work with them as well too. Uh, I, for I, brief I lived in Halifax for a year in the mid eighties. My wife was transferred there. So uh, I worked on a, just a little project. It was um, uh, kind of a second stage they were starting to do at Neptune, as I recall. But the, the, my story about John Dunsworth, we hired him. I don't know, you may have heard of the Hubcap Comedy Festival, Frankie. We Hubcap. Lots of people. We get lots oh, of people. yes. I'm familiar yeah, with that. Lots yeah. of people from Miramichi usually come down to see it. Joe uh, Butler, I think, is one of the... Uh, he's a local comedian around here. I believe he does... Uh, uh, Jimmy McKinley is a Jimmy guy. McKinley, yep. That's one yeah. as well, too. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, what actually our sound guys from Miramichi, James Butler there. I don't know if you know James. James Butler. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so, but we hired, uh, and it was a kind of a mistake, I would tell you, because it was one of the years our, our coordinator got all, he said, oh, I, I booked it. And I said, well, well, you booked what? And he said, I booked this act, and it's it's 
Randy and Mr. Leahy, they have a stage show. And I said, well, do they have really an act? And, you know, there's one of these things like there's the cult of the trailer park boys, but I have to tell you, it's one of the worst shows I ever saw in my life. <laughs> and John Dunsworth was responsible for it. And we know. no, but we booked it and it was, you know, John Dunsworth being the character of Mr. Leahy and the guy of Randy who didn't have much to say, but stands there with the no shirt. Uh, Pat they, Roach they, were, they were they were attempting to sustain a show for like an hour and a half and they maybe had five minutes worth of material it was awful but one of one of the things that happened in the show <laughs> I think poor John knew they were bombing you know and it was I think what what they do you know is they get like a a casino somewhere will hire them to come and sort of stand there while people play the slot machines or whatever it's one of those you know when you you'll do anything when you're Joe business like you know, you'll even be in a, in a, in a nude musical, as Donnie can tell you. But <laughs> they came in and they're doing the show. But at a certain point, about towards the end of the show, John Dunsworth broke character. He got out, stopped being Mr. Leahy. And he said, this is one of the most, and I work at the Capitol Theater, which is just beautiful, you know. Mm. And he said, this is one of the best theaters I've ever been in my life. He says, I'm sorry, you'll have to indulge me. And this is supposed to be a you know a comedy show <laughs> but he he starts doing a very serious shakespearean monologue like horatio or some freaking thing <laughs> he's he goes on for like five minutes doing this you know forebear <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of what is supposed to be the Leahy. so poor john he got his moment he got his moment to get back to theater but i'm sure he probably had his you know it's like everything you know jean pierre build these bridges you don't call them you know, Jean-Pierre, the bridge builder, but, you know, he sucked one penis and there he is. <laughs> I know that's the line. <laughs> he, he oh, he just went to an R-rated. Before, I, you know, I work with a production manager. Use that expression all the time. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it was like that. It's like he must be standing there on the stage saying, what the hell am I doing? You know, I agreed to be in this stupid trailer park, boys. Oh, I get to be God. this alcoholic. I don't think John even drank or whatever. But he goes, this is what I'm known for. Standing there with this guy with the beer belly and no shirt. He had nothing to say. So he probably said, look, I'm an actor, damn it. And he got out and he, he did that. So that, that's, that's what I, John <laughs> I heard somebody, I heard, uh, where did I hear it on? I, it, it was, um, it was when he passed away. It was, uh, I saw this thing. It was on a swearnet.com, the boy, uh, the, the trailer park boys, uh, online, uh, uh, website. And they told this story about John. They, they did this live show where he was doing this handstand in his underwear and basically his junk started. <laughs> <laughs> coming out of his underwear and they're going like they're like mr Leahy, you know your your junk's hanging out of your pants yeah i don't give an f like <laughs> he's one of those guys it seemed like he just did not care at all you know what i mean like so full of energy and um i i met him briefly um when uh um him and pat uh uh randy came here to mike's bar and grill in miramichi for a show i uh, i uh, got to i i snuck in for a little uh private meet and greet and it was just you couldn't have met a nicer guy the oh, John, no, okay, for sure. you really yeah. could not have met a nicer guy. And uh, speaking of like knowing famous uh, Canadians around here, Donnie, you've actually know uh, you you know a couple people, I believe it. Eh? You know, like uh, Corner Gas, I believe you've known. No, 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 Chris. But I was just going to talk about people, and in in and it's not to say, oh, what famous person have I worked with? But it's <laughs> interesting. What's interesting about that is that I I had the occasion to to work with. Um, the guy that played uh, George Jefferson 
Sherman Hemsley at in Stage West when the show was still popular. So they, they had a tendency out there to hire a star when they're not filming and do a buffet and people just went to see the star at the buffet, right? Yeah. And, so, and, and then everybody else has to play the roles around them. So I was worried about working with somebody that, that experienced and famous, but this was the interesting thing is that as soon as he had his bodyguard and his agent with him the whole time. But when you were in rehearsal, it was just you and him and the director. Hmm. And it just came down to the same thing. All of us go through. He, he came up through the years as a, an actor in Chicago. So immediately it wasn't just like a, somebody that got a TV series and had no talent and blah, blah, blah. And uh, you, you'd block a scene and, and immediately he would say, Oh my God, sorry about that. I screwed you up. And, and I remember on the first preview, uh, like an hour before, an hour and a half before the show, uh, I came in and he was standing in the wings all ready to go on. I said, Sherman, like, uh, what what are you doing? He said, oh God, he said, I, it's been long since I've done theater. He said, people just come in for a half an hour and watch the show and and they they tape it a couple of times. He said, look at my hands. He was wringing wet with sweat. He said, I completely <laughs> forgot what it's like to do live. And it's times like that, you realize an actor is an actor is an actor. It all comes down to, this is what you do, right? And some of us are, you know, have a, a big jobs where we can buy lots of yachts and houses and stuff. That's fine. But in terms of the, the in terms of the business itself, we first rehearsal is always first rehearsal. You know, uh, dress rehearsal is dress rehearsal. <laughs> uh, an audience is an audience, right? And um, yeah. Do we tell a million stories about like dress rehearsals? Like it, it was me and uh, Chris Matheson were talking about how like dress rehearsals always like the, oh my God, what did I get myself into kind of a rehearsal? <laughs> yeah, that's it. But a super uh, rewarding. That, that there's always a date on the calendar when you're doing the show. I heard yeah. an expression recently that Lauren Michaels used to always tell his writers and they people would be talking about how they wanted to do what the situation was. He said, and he'd say, look, folks, we don't do the show because the show is ready. We do the show because it's 1130 on Saturday night. And that's true. The show must go on. That's it. It's a, there's a date on the calendar and you've you've got to be ready. And we've all had those experiences. Donnie, you and I have talked about it before. Marsh, we all like to I, I, I'm the kind of a, I'm a very pragmatic actor. I like to get up and get working as soon as we can. But there was a whole period through Canadian theater where things became a lot more theoretical. And I heard a story at one point, Donnie, I think you told it to me where the director told everybody after the table read. So what we're going to do in lieu of blocking, we're all just going to sit at the table and continue to read the play. And when you feel like moving, just get up and move. Didn't actually start the blocking process. And until eventually it's like, you know, it's about three days till opening and everybody's still sitting around the table. To say, yeah, we, we've got to block this show, folks. Yeah, you may be referencing Jan Irwin, I think. We, we both have our friend Jan Irwin. She's a wonderful lady, very creative in something. But I remember I did a show with Dora LePay. She's not with us anymore, unfortunately. Somebody Marshall and I worked with here years ago. And, and he just said, you know, where do you want me to go, Jan? Well, we'll just see how, it, how you feel, which is understandable at the beginning. The first preview, we preview in half an hour. Where the fuck do you want me to stand? <laughs> And, and he said, well, we'll see how the audience feels. And I remember Gerald, it was, he, Gerald, he buried his face in a whole bowl of mashed potatoes. He just put them in and he said, I can't take this anymore. Yeah, everybody has their own, uh, everybody has their own. And, you know, people have ways of working that are contrary sometimes to the way that I think the three of us share that. We just like to make the show and get it up quick and, you know, and, and, and then you, you, you know, you work sometimes after the show opens, it changes and, but you want to be as ready as possible. But it's not to say that what other people do isn't legitimate. Like I, the very, the, the whole reason why the three of us are kind of here now is 
because I got to work in a place called Morrisburg. Again, my wife was the, the breadwinner in the family in the early years. So she was transferred to Ottawa. So I said, oh, there's a theater company there, Great Canadian Theater. They're holding auditions. It was like, a no, you know, was no internet then. It was a sign up somewhere. And I went and auditioned and I got cast in this play, Saltwater Moon, which is like the most overdone Canadian play probably in the history of Canadian theater. But it was the second production ever that had been one in Toronto. And so this is in the in the mid 80s. And uh, um, who's the director of Jan Irwin? And it was like that. And I'd been used to, you know, I had this little company I started in Fredericton where we would mount shows and put them in hotel ballrooms and tour all around the Maritimes for you know, to run a show for six weeks, like, you know, eventually we started writing our own, but then I'm working with this person. I never worked like this before, but she would just kind of, you know, ask like the character, you know, what's it like for you at home? And I said, well, you know, my teeth hurt because I don't brush them enough or whatever. Like I was trying to be clever, but she was, you know, trying to get into the whole background and I'm just figuring like, where do I move? You know, how do I because I had these long speeches to learn and, you know, eventually you figure out. So it was me and another actor. And so we, we run it at this theater, the summer theater, uh, which had been just accepting shows from other companies to play there. But then I got there and then they said, well, they're looking to hire someone to be the director of this theater. Would I be interested in applying? I said, Oh, why not? You know, sure. So I did. And then I got hired and then that next summer was the first season that we did all the three shows. And that was when I got, I said, if I, if I could get Donnie to come down and be in this place, I know I, we would be off to a good start. So uh, we did this, uh, this uh, original play that I commissioned a fellow I'd worked with, uh, Ted Johns, who himself has another way of working, which is curious, but uh, uh, about this famous doctor from Williamsburg who, um, who, uh, you know, it, it, in the years, in the 1930s or the 20s leading up to the, the Great Depression, there would be this phenomenon where people come from all over North America, they come to Ontario and they go to North Bay to visit the Dion Quintuplets. And then they come to Williamsburg because there was this miracle doctor who would twist, he was like the father of podiatry and he would twist their toes and make them better. And we did a play about that and Donnie was in it and he was just brilliant in the show, but I, I and then eventually, like I said, I after a number of years, um, I, I you know I would direct a lot of plays, but I was an actor as well, and I'd, sometimes I direct Donnie in a show and vice versa. And then uh, you know here we are all this time later because of Jan Irwin, let's say. I know Jan Irwin. This might be a nice segue into Norm Foster because around that period of time, Jess and I had been uh, uh, sharing an apartment for a long time. He was doing his career and I was doing mine, and then. Um, um, uh, so I did the show with Marshall and then Marshall said to me one day, he said, this was in the late eighties. He said, you know, there's a guy in Fredericton that he's writing these plays and they're really funny. I mean, he said like, they're re really, they really are funny. And so what happened is that Marshall actually did um, my darling Judith, which is one of Norm Foster's early plays. Mm. And then the affections of May, which still is probably one of his most famous plays. Actually, the, the second production of those shows ever, because Theodore New Brunswick did the first one. So I got a chance to be in both of those uh, shows, the second production of either of these shows. And around here, no matter what I would do, people will always say, oh, you're the guy that was in the rabbit suit. In the, the rabbit suit. <laughs> 40 years ago, 40 years ago. I'm glad it was a success, because otherwise we'd have to live that down. But um, 
but Jess I, had known Norm before that. I had a, I had a circle get completed. Marshall, you'll appreciate this story that has to do get completed at Upper Canada Playhouse in the weirdest way. So, uh, I don't know, five years, more, seven years ago, 2014 or 15, uh, Donnie got, Norm wanted to do the ladies foursome, which is a female version of the foursome. And it was the premiere of it. And I was going to direct it. And I worked on a lot of Norm shows, as we all have, and I knew Norm. And I had known Norm from way back when. And I'll t what had happened was I was working at the St. Lawrence Center in Toronto, Theatre Plus, with Malcolm Black, who had gone there. I did a two or three years there with him. And the first year that I was there, he, uh, he'd cast me in some play and he had to cast a, a girl opposite me and it was a very specific part that he needed to cast he wanted me to come in and read against these four or five actresses that he wanted to have a call back with and I said oh that's fantastic I'm happy to do it and, and uh, he said also he said I want you to stay that afternoon because I'm bringing a playwright from New Brunswick I'm doing his first play that he's going to have come to Toronto and it was the Melville boys so they had done the New Brunswick one the Theater New Brunswick version. Now it was coming here, and they had and all these actors came in to read um, for uh, Owen, I guess the young the young brother, and I mean just the best of the best. The actors that came through Gordon Clapp and Michael Hogan and just like all these incredible actors are coming in, and I'm playing the girl that he proposes to in this thing, and it was <laughs> like an acting class as they all come in and I did read this scene with them, and this was in the green room at the St. Lawrence Center. Now, 30 years later, uh, I, uh, Donnie and I are doing this play. Norm, we had one girl left to cast in the show. Norm was on his way. He always had this show that he would do in Bermuda with Nairn, some theater he would work at in the wintertime. He was going to be coming through the only place that we could find. I think it might have been the day after Boxing Day or something between Christmas and New Year's. The only place we could find was my friend Jimmy Rowe was now the general manager at the St. Lawrence Center. And I called him. I said, we can't find anywhere that's open. Can you open up? Can somebody will be there at the St. Lawrence Center and just let us use a room? He said, sure, I can let you use the green room. We went into the green room. We're having these things. And it occurred to me, I turned to Norm and I said, do you know, we were in this very room when they were doing the callbacks for the Melville boys when it was first coming to Toronto. Our lives have not evolved one bit in 35 years. <laughs> like, We've had still. no growth whatsoever. <laughs> doing the exact same things. And uh, yeah, and it was just like, holy moly, how does that happen? Like you blink and there you are. Time, and more, time and just flies and you're... It's crazy. And, and the time when Norm first came to Toronto doing the Melville Boys, um, John Dolan, you remember John Dolan? John Dolan had introduced us uh, after, you know, these auditions and he'd come and while they were in rehearsal and boy, we had a couple of months of, man, did we have a, did we have a good time in those days in Toronto and that when you're young and you're making a bit of money and all of a sudden there's a big fountain out front at the St. Lawrence Center right on, right on uh, Front Street there. And at the half hour, we dump a box of Tide in it and then we go out at intermission and smoke cigarettes at the back and you could see it all bubbling over and <laughs> gathering around it. Just the most amazing, most amazing fun you can you could ever have. But uh, you'd be yeah. surprised how much how much uh, good memories like that you can make, like like, uh, you know, what I mean? during this business and you don't even realize how fast the time goes by. You know what I mean? Like it's you're like, oh, my God, those old days. I wish we could go back to that, you know, and try to recreate it like the first time it happened. 
Um, so, I mean, speaking of Norm, uh, we'll move into our uh, first main topic that we were going to uh, discuss, which was uh, who are some of our fa- uh, favorite writers in entertainment? So Norm Foster is obviously one of them. Uh, so, Donnie, I mean, like you've obviously done lots of Norm Foster. He's 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 one of your like go to's yeah. when it comes to plays. What always draws you to it, to his, well, you know, everybody says the same thing about him all the time, which is true. He writes shows about real people and the way real people talk and all of that stuff. That's kind of basically what starts the whole thing with people's love affair with 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 uh, Norm. He's uh, he's a very funny man, obviously being a morning show guy. Uh, he obviously had employed that skill of continuously writing stuff on the spot. But in terms of um, of uh, him falling into what he does for a living, I mean it 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 happened late in life for him. But he just really seems to have a um, uh, as I say a real sense of of what the, the experience of the everyday person is, which, which is, so he it makes him one of the uh, classic writers that I would use to continuously build an audience here because they know that he's gonna be talking about something that they can relate to. Of late, like a lot of playwrights, he, he did, you might say, obviously when, when he wrote the Melville Boys, it certainly was an example of this, but he knows how to write fluff and funny stuff, you know, just regular funny stuff. But of late, he's been really kind of addressing really important social issues, whether or not they be family issues or um, uh, issues of inclusion, you know, of, uh, of uh, inclusivity or mm-hmm. anything. He gets to them, but he really uses his humor as a, as a way of doing it. So he draws you in, and once you're in there, you see characters dealing with some really kind of fairly serious issues, and but yet at the same time, he uses humor to kind of, you know, temper that so that people are having a great time, but then when they're going home, they're thinking, but God, yeah, I was in that situation two months ago, or I know somebody who was. So he has his finger on the pulse of that, and he's prolific. Honest to God, he can't not write. During the pandemic, he's written 10 plays and uh, and he just cannot not do that, you know? And some are obviously, uh, would appeal to somebody more than more than mm. others. But uh, but but that is that, that sense of insurance you have that when you have a Norm Foster show that people know the kind of show it's gonna be. Now the trap you fall into there and like, you know, we're doing two of this this summer. Well, I don't know if it's really wise to do two shows by the same person all the time. Uh, <laughs> Like it, it happened in a weird way because of when one of them was available. It's like uh, a safe option, though, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But uh, so you can fall into that. But there are, are, are other playwrights coming up now that uh, he certainly has supported, like Kristen De Silva, who's doing fantastic stuff, coming up the same way that he did, you know. Um, but he does have that uh, finger on the pulse. Now you will find very few Toronto theaters that actually produce his stuff, and he resents that. And. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so the whole other thing in, in play there, but it's interesting when you talk about comedy, I always say there's more to a good comedy than just laughs, and there certainly are, and certainly Norm minds that as well, uh, but there's the whole thing of uh, people thinking perhaps it's lowbrow only, as opposed to really defining what, um, I mean, I'm here, there are a lot of people with Canada Council having that attitude, that if there's comedy in a season, then they won't look at it uh, as seriously, and, and, and I really do think that that denies the real purpose of a really good comedy, which is to make some really good points about things. But now you see festivals like Shaw and Stratford, my God, like even, I even think I saw when they were advertising Titus Andronicus, which is the bloodiest play, some little <laughs> one saying, well, there might be a few jokes here, right? You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're pushing the comedy button because they realize that 
that it's a it's it's something that people really need to one ex, uh, extent or the other. And and I really think that Norm's work is underestimated to the extent which he uses it to really talk about important things as well, only in an accessible way, which means that people are actually sitting in the seats for heaven's sakes instead of hearing about it. Right. So I think it's an important playwright in the country. No, absolutely. Before we continue, we would like to give a shout out to Tanisha Hallahan on behalf of the Miramichi Regional Multicultural Association. Tanisha is seeking out people within the Miramichi community who will be interested in taking part in the Elm Park Night Market starting June 16th and every other Thursday thereafter until September 1st from 4.30 to 9 p.m. This is a great opportunity for anyone interested in selling crafts, food, homemade items, providing quality entertainment, or anything that can help further benefit the wonderfully strong community established here in the Miramichi. Tables cost $20 and preference will be given to vendors that are able to commit to all 12 market days. So reach out to Tanisha Hallahan by texting or calling 1-506-424-8126 or by emailing tanisha.hallahan at mrma.ca if you're looking to make a difference in our community. That's 1-506-424-8126 or email tanisha.hallahan at mrma.ca to get started. The Elm Park Night Market is from June 16th to September 1st every night from 4.30 to 9 p.m. And uh, I mean, like uh, for me, always um, like, uh, you know, for like CM Productions and, um, um, and, and uh, all the plays uh, that I've done here and acted in, uh, our, our, our all... Our go-to was always the great Neil Simon. Right. Neil Simon, you can never go wrong with, with, with a Neil Simon. And, and I know you've done some plays with a Neil Simon. Jesse Marshall, have you guys done any? What's your history with the Neil Simon show is like? Yeah, I, I had great success when I first started my directing and, you know, my, my shall we say, actor-manager life. That was... Um, uh, a play called The Good Doctor. Um, it is certainly one of my favorite Neil Simon plays, and it's Ooh. it's his take on uh, Chekhov short stories. And check uh, and there's a character of Chekhov who narrates, and uh, it sounds like a really bizarre combination, but it it um, he wrote these series of scenes that all came together. It, you know, had some success on Broadway back in the day. Um, and uh, there's you and you, you know, it's interesting that you went to Neil Simon after we're talking about Norm Foster, because I remember making a joke to and about Norm back in the day, you know, where I called him Norm Simon, you know, it was that. <laughs> uh, Neil Foster. Yeah, Neil Foster. There Probably you go. One of those two. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's uh, actually an actor. The, um, not everything that you do you know, that's the other thing about working is, you know, not everything you do is going to be a great success, but some of the things are great to work on. And you wonder why, you know, it, it never was the success it ought to be. And, and I should bring this up. I should bring it up because what the hell it's a podcast. And, uh, but at one point, like I had the, the crazy mandate when I was in Morrisburg that everything we did had to be a new Canadian play. And most of the plays were premieres that we did. And so at one point I, I don't know how it came up if I approached Donnie or Donnie, you know, had the idea that we were going to do a show. I was just going to be the producer of it, but Jesse and Donnie wrote a musical together. And we, this was, I think it was 1990 or 91, maybe 91. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it should have been like the idea was just out of the park. Like it was, you know, we're in a small town and the idea, I think that the, the title was called bingo night and it would be songs the the audience would really play bingo but it was a story and 
and you know we did it and at the time there was uh um this notorious uh, <laughs> critic at, at the ottawa citizen i know where who, you're going yeah could, <laughs> you know you could you Sarah Bernhardt could have come back from the grave and he'd have something bad to say about her. Like, it was that bad? And, you know, yeah, probably as it turned out, I'm just saying as, as the outsider that there were things that we rushed, meaning like now when you do come from away, it gets workshopped at Sheridan College for two months and then it gets developed here and then, you know, it gets played. And then like two years later, you do it. Like, you know, they had the idea six weeks in. I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it in July. I was like, what? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that was really kind of seat. That was my fault, like seat of the pants kind of thing. And, uh, you know, there were some issues when they cast it to like one of the guys um, who was playing a lead role is somebody you, you guys had worked with or whatever, who, who, um, you know, I remember that his grandson died and he had to be replaced in the show. And it was like, it was, it was a series of like, you know, unfortunate events that the show could have been better, but my God, we did a good job considering. And, you know, unfortunately the show has never been done again, but it was one of those things like, I'm, gl I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad we're talking about it now, but it's gone. Like it's, it's not like it was a film that, you know, sometimes you can watch a film and certain films become like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, for example, was panned when it came out. And now it's a cult classic for whatever reason. Like, because it's theater, it happened. Not that many people saw it, but a number of them did. And I remember having people like 20 years later come and mention that show, how much fun they had that night when they were there. But, you know, there wasn't a second production of it, you know? And, and uh, I think the three of us being on this panel, like that's the one thing that, you know, up until this summer where we're going to be doing a Norm Foster project. You're right, Marshall. That's that's sort of, that was kind of the last time that we all really worked sim simultaneously. We're often at the same theaters yeah. doing different things at the same time, but that'll be that'll be the first project to get back together again. I, listen, I'm with you, Marshall. I, I actually adore that show. And I still think that, I think that show was, was fantastic the story of the critic is almost another that's almost another side story to the whole thing at the end of the day the audience saw it loved it and i i'm still really fond of the show i have i have not one bit of 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 shame or bad memory or anything about that show i thought it was fantastic but the critic and i can't think of his name right now but it was the one michael of groberman michael groberman it's one of my never forget the bad kids right so. <laughs> my god so what happened was so he it's going to be his he's been hired by the ottawa citizen this is going to be the first time he's come out and reviewed it was the first time at marshall theater god bless marshall who just put all this faith in us and said okay it's a great idea it's a great concept come on let's do it so we roll our sleeves up we write this musical and we're we cast it and we we get it on the boards he comes out first and he does this marvelous puff piece. He spends an afternoon with us. We talk about the show. We, he, you know, he writes all this background information. And I think he puts a little article in the paper in advance of the review that's going to come out. Then he comes and sees the show. And I'll tell you, I've had a few, I, you know, you can't be in this business and not get a bad review. I've had a few <laughs> over the years, but this one was spectacular. It was, it was the, the headline was, it was three B's and I can never remember the third bingo night boring bungled and and i forget what the third <laughs> b was that was that we opened the paper it was like well i'll be god you know here we go is that so, your first uh, bad review <laughs> no god no 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 but it was that was uh but it was probably 
It was probably, it was as bad as they get. I know. The, the interesting thing about it, a side story was, well, of the three things, the, the production of it, the music of it, or the, the script, I was responsible for the script. It was mainly my fault. My point is, if I were to do that again, I'd know exactly what to, to do with those scenes. It's growth, right? But the thing about that critic, we had a couple of Ottawa actors coming saying, oh, I feel sorry for you. We liked it and too bad. And I thought, you just wait, honey. And sure enough, everybody that we showed Ottawa that year got dinged. I think the guy lasted one year he had a nervous breakdown and even oh, yeah. that Goober. Oh. it was just anyway we were the ones that tested it right it was just a bad you know oh, thing, but, but i uh i actually love that show and it's funny and that device that we used in it the convention of having the audience play bingo at various parts during the during the show uh that was subsequently used in other in other shows and and uh i'm not saying anybody stole it from us but it just demonstrates that it is a good idea it's shown up elsewhere yeah, yeah. It, it became this sort of environmental theater uh um, right. But like, but like, but like right, you jump right in with a workshop, and and uh, it would be better now. But it was at the time what it was. And, yep. Yeah, it was quite. I still say we should give it another go. I still say we should get another go. I've mentioned that to Donnie more uh, than a few times, and Donnie always says, "Oh, I don't want to." Well, you know, I'll drive up to see it. I'll be here in a heartbeat. I like. See There's I one. I, I dumped that script somewhere. I don't know where it was. The only other two times I threw away a script. One was in a. Uh, show at Port Dover and it was such a bad script and clo closing night they had a barbecue and I threw it at the barbecue fire. The other one, the more dramatic one, is that that uh, 12 hour show that I was in called Raw. It was in uh, Holland and we hated the show so bad that they put me up in a, in Villa de, uh, somewhere around the North Sea. And I remember the final, like my most dramatic thing is I took the script and I threw it into the North Sea and the pages flew everywhere. That, uh, <laughs> that was really satisfying. I still have the script. Somewhere He's tough somewhere. <laughs> he hasn't thrown it yet. I haven't thrown it out. <laughs> I may dust it off again and try and talk you into it at one point. But I'll tell you, you talk about bad reviews. The worst turkey I was ever in. I was in a show at the Bayview Playhouse called Made in Canada. It, the, it was so bad. I cannot tell you how bad this show was. The dress rehearsal was five hours long. Brian Foley was directing it. They had to start. It was some some unknown writer had been bankrolled by an advertising executive that he knew. And it was a history of Canada, not from... You know, you think 1867, it was from it started from the creation of the earth. So it started and it started out with a, uh, uh, it, it had something in the first act to offend just about everybody. So it started out with a, I think it was a Margaret Mead poem or, or and, it, and it was, and God, the earth was, you know, no space unbound space and god let his mighty sperm flow and it made <laughs> you feel you know the the 60 people that happened to be in the 700 seat theater just sort of kind of tighten up a bit and then it was just one awful joke after another and 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 we couldn't hold a blackout in the first act because of the door at the back opening and closing people, the leaving. People, people leaving and one day we started we started the second act in the dark where 12 of us in the cast would come out on stage and we would start this Anne Mortify song, beautiful song called Born to Live. We were born to live. This very soft song, and it builds into this big anthem. Da, da, da. And the lights would come up and find sing us. Sing it, on. Jesse, sing it. Well, uh, the lights come up, find us on stage. And we I'm looked out, and Susan Henley's in the show, and she's over to my right. And I'm looking around as you sing the song. We'd started that day. I think there'd been eight or 10 people in the audience. 
I'm looking around the and I'm almost convinced there is no one left. It turns out there was still two people there. But it occurred to me after, as soon as we were doing a costume check, I said, Susan, I don't think there's anybody here. I don't think there's anybody in the audience. And I often wonder how long we would go before we would just, people would just sort of stop the show and say, guys, 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 there's nobody here. There's nobody <laughs> in the theater. You know, oh my Lord. Well, so that, that, got a, well, that, that one got a bad review. Is that the one the critic had the famous review? They should have installed speed bumps to stop the audience from leaving in droves. They did. That's the one that I left my script once in rehearsal at the subway station. <laughs> and Carolyn Scott, I called Carolyn and she went down to the subway station to St. Clair and found it. And, and it was the same day there was a bomb scare at the subway station. And she picked up the script and she said to one of the police officers, if you're looking for a bomb, I think I found it. You never forget those. It's like I said about my friends who are teachers or retired teachers. They'll run into somebody and it's like they'll remember that kid because they gave them hell. <laughs> and uh, shows are like that sometimes too, you know. Oh my. But uh, uh, one thing about like uh, someone like, like a Neil Simon, like where, um, uh, where I mean, like, you know, when, uh, when he wrote it, like, you know, years ago, back then, like, you know, some of the stuff that he brings up, back then it was no issue to do it. But nowadays, if you do it today, uh, there's, it's there's always that fear. You're like, I don't want anyone to get offended. You know, yeah, well, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of Neil Simon over the years. And 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 I mean, most recently you encounter these things. I actually read an article recently. We did Plaza Suite a couple of years ago, a play that mm. I, I, I love. Adore that show. Uh, yeah. And there it's now got the remount on uh, on Broadway. So which just, I just, actually uh, had tickets to go see two years ago and then COVID happened yes. and now that's yeah. up in the air <laughs> well exactly so so uh and i'm it's on our list i mean we're definitely we're hoping to go in 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 march and 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 uh pardon me in april and and see it with any luck um but uh hopefully it's going to run and take but there was quite an interesting article in the new york times about doing neil simon in this day and age and it touches on the very things that that you're talking about um that there are some 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 sort of some concepts and some old things marshall you have you have something to say about this because i find it, it's interesting we're all talking about comedy and and you know uh the role of comedy in theater and all these things when you want to write plays that have some sort of social significance or some observation of our culture um um there's a lot of standups that deal with this and a lot of, and a lot of people that have a concern about it. It can get more and more difficult to do comedy now because it's so easy to push buttons um, uh, in, in a way that can have all this blowback about how people feel about a certain issue. And, and some standups saying that, you know, it's very difficult to do comedy if you just can't make fun of anything or anybody uh, you're in the business of doing it every day, Marsha, when you, when you tour with your shows, um, what's your take on how that all goes yeah i'm in a show now it's not a comedy per se but uh i'm doing a, a play that's going on in in late april we haven't start rehearsal yet but we've read through the script the script i wrote about eight years ago and we're re remounting it at where i play marshall McLuhan, and uh it's it's based on a, a, a conversation between marshall McLuhan and northrop fry we have that northrop fry the great Canadian critic, as you may, may, you may not know this, but he grew up in Moncton. So we have this Fry Literary Festival here held every year. So this will be held during that. But in it, we have actual writings uh, and things that Northrop Fry and Marshall McLuhan said. And at one point I had a line about, um, you know, it's about Quebec. Uh, 
And, uh, and so the, what Marshall McLuhan actually said, he says, you know, I, I really feel for the people of Quebec in some sense, they're like the Negroes of the U S and then my colleague who's in the show says, you know, you, you can't say the word mm. Negro. And I said, well, yeah, but Marshall McLuhan said it, the play is set in the 1970s. It's not the other end, but it's that point now, like we, he, he said, well, you know, you may as well just say it's, it's like the black people. And, but Marshall McLuhan wouldn't have said that because that wasn't in vogue in the 1970s. So you're always making those kind of adjustments to make sure that the audience who we know uh, are going to be um, the, the sort of uh, highbrow upper crust people of our area, the literary set, if you will, uh, we don't want to necessarily, so I probably will not say the word that Marshall McLuhan actually said, you know, um, and it's like with my show, my original play, I have my character say worse than Negro, it's the N word. And he was saying it in regards to being surprised about the country singer, Charlie Pride. He heard him on the radio, but when he saw him, he was shocked. And this was in the play, but I said it because this is what the guys in the mill would say all the time. And they weren't saying it harshly, but that was their word for a person of color. And of course, <laughs> The play was done at the Blythe Festival with another actor, the guy we all know, Ron Gabriel, playing the role. And uh, I insisted then, this was the 1980s, that that line be in there. And there was a bit of foo-for-all back then about him. Can you imagine now? Like, I don't say it anymore when I do that show. And I will be doing that same show this summer for uh, just before I come to Aurelia, I'll be in Halliburton. But yeah, there's the dilemma. There's the horns of it. Like, if you really want to be true to the character of the time. And it's a play, in my case, it's a play set in the early 1980s. And, you know, I'm trying to be true to these people, but I'm not, you know, so, and the thing you realize eventually is that the theater is not real. I mean, the theater is totally artificial. You, you, you're pretending to be something else to get people to relate to a sense of reality. And sometimes the more manipulative and artificial you can be, the better you can be to get people to reality. So that's part of why you make those adjustments because. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that in terms of the wider conversation there, obviously there are words that deserve to, to be retired and even yeah, that's one of them. context and that's, that's one of them. And I've encountered, I encountered another one in a, in a, in a play. Is it maybe, is it a Sam Bobrook play? Who wrote weekend comedy, Donnie? Was yeah, it the same Bobrook yeah. and, and, yeah. um, <laughs> But, but there, there, there was a word, and and I'll tell you what I don't. As far as changing things and plays, it's just not not done. As far as I'm concerned, we always get into that in terms of people saying, be swearing, you know, whether it's fuck or you know, or God. You want it to sound like natural, like someone like Neil Simon oh, or or Norm Foster. They write how people talk. You know what I mean? That's what I love about it, them. If it's written, if it's written, and it doesn't fall into that sort of category of words that that quite rightly should be should be retired. Uh, even in an historical context, I don't think that you need to go through and start drawing lines through Huck Finn or anything. Uh, some things live in an historical context and they can do that. But when we're doing a contemporary version of a play, uh, the, the larger question with Neil Simon stuff is just the way prevailing attitudes were uh, there, there. For example, uh, Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Frankie, have you done that one or read that no, one? No, we have. I've I've read the the synopsis of it though. I I I, I am familiar crap. with it though. Really, really good show from what I hear. Yeah, 
Yeah, and there it, the the last scene is the, one of the most interesting interesting things to try and do in this day and age. Uh, the so the setup is it's this episodic little three, three scenes of a guy named Barney who is trying desperately to have uh, a romantic treat of. Uh, 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 in his in his mother's New York apartment to try and to try and you know be a be a real lover and uh, trying to have lover. an affair trying to have an affair and so the you know he has the first one he tries the false of that one finally ends up there with uh, his uh, with his his friend's wife and he's invited her over for a drink and basically at the end of it he begins to chase her around the room. <laughs> and and he it, it, it's it's funny because he is kind of this uh inept um anything but a lover and it's also funny because he's not an aggressive awful person and there's a when i say chase around the room he's just trying to make this awkward advance to her yeah. And I had uh, I had Brian Young and Allison Lawrence play it for me, who are a married couple and who are who are both, um, you know, have a great sense of social responsibility and and you don't want to do anything that's going to characterize something awful. And it was so interesting watching Allison. There's a, there's a moment where she says to the character, she says, "Barney, you're scaring me," and she was able to do it in a way that when you showcase the ineptitude of this awkward past that he's trying to make and when he says you know what do you need me to do just be a real tough guy and do it in a real tough way and she's this this notion of sort of surprise that the subtext she put on it was barney you're behaving totally out of character for you <laughs> this isn't you what are you trying to pull you know she didn't say barney you're scaring me she didn't ham it up but she said it in such a way that it took the sort of threatening notion that he was basically going to assault her and uh, because it's not it's not written but when you have pieces that are i think written with that with that kind of um nuance yeah it's easy to it's 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 easy to mess that up and it's easy to come out but a very interesting article the new york times can neil simon be done not just for that reason but just that the whole the whole notion of comedy seems to have uh, seems to have changed. And in 2022, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you know what? Go see Book of Mormon and see what you can get away with. You know? Yeah, exactly. Literally, literally. That's actually a perfect example of that, too. Um, one thing Neil Simon does um, that that's actually super interesting. And this this kind of bleeds into our uh, second and final main topic, which is uh, sequel, uh, uh, sequel superiority and, and, and some sequels that are better than the original. Neil Simon actually has a trilogy and I, I can't think of any playwright uh, who has, ha, has actually done this with plays where they, where they take one play and then they make a sequel and then they make another sequel. I've never actually thought of that, but it gets better each one. Like Marshall, do you know, is there, is there one that comes to your mind? I might be missing one. <laughs> Marshall. That's right. And I play familiar with all three. Yeah. Marshall's got three. Lanford Wilson who wrote Tally's Folly, he also wrote uh, Tally and Son, which is also called The Tale Told. And the third in that trilogy, I think, was called Fifth of July. He's actually one of my favorite playwrights, Lamford Wilson. Anyways, but I do, but yeah, it's not common, frankly. No, absolutely. And then I remember it was, uh, I was reading because uh, like, like, like a Brighton Beach Memoirs is the one that comes to my mind. 
right. one of the all-time greats from Neil Simon. Uh, Biloxi Blues was the sequel to that. So when you're <laughs> when you're hearing about it and it's like the same character, you're like, wow, like that's that's something I've never actually heard of being done in theater before. Um, and one of of course, you know, everybody knows the odd couple. Uh, Donnie, you say that you watched that that uh, you're not a big movie guy, but you but you watched the the um um. Did you say that that you watch? Was it the odd the odd couple two or, or was oh, it the I've female odd couple? Like uh, I've done both of them. I've done the odd couple a couple of times, and then I did the female odd couple. Yeah, I just think that was a funnier play than the odd couple. But he even said that in an interview with with uh, Charlie Rose once that, of course, it was better because he wrote it later, right? No, it, exactly. It, it yeah, a funnier play. But the, it comes to a certain point at the female odd couple when it's a, basically the same script. Uh, the lines are almost identical. I even read it too. It's like the exact yeah. same thing, except it's like, you know, instead of poker, it's a trivial pursuit. And instead of, exactly. yeah, yeah, like it's real, real. Um, uh, uh, like when, and, and I don't know the series of them. And I keep waiting to see when people are going to start doing them again. And I, I almost think of, I'm almost thinking of that. Maybe I might do that before I leave this place, do a little bit of a retro aspect to the season. And that is uh, David French's scripts, uh, the, the, the Mercer family, you There's know, four of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, continuing, a real suite of, of shows all about the same family. Um, maybe that might be a good project to do one at the end of every season for the next four years, you know? No, uh, absolutely. That way back in the, the beginning when there were very few Canadian playwrights at all, right? And of course he wrote the two-hander that Marshall was talking about. And, that, and there's an example of sort of like Star Wars, you know, yeah. he, he had the three uh, of the feels lately. I forget the, the three. Then he went home, back, leaving home, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Leaving home. And then he went and wrote the prequel, Saltwater Moon. He wrote the prequel after all that. You know? yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of examples of that in theater for sure. So, Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, like, even in like a live action movies, I mean, like, you know, uh, is there any, any movies in particular? I mean, I mean, like, you know, we've, we've been kind of going on a roll with theater for the last little bit, which I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, so it's so amazing. I could watch. So, so, um, I'm just going to uh, ask when's your guys podcast coming out. Can you guys do a podcast of you guys just talking about theater for, you might find this hard to believe Frankie. This is my first podcast. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Like, you guys got, like, so much chemistry. I just want to say that real quick. Like, (laughs) but... um, Marshall, you've been doing the podcast thing, have you? Yeah, well, I've been guests on quite a few of them, but I'm starting to feel, you know, very inadequate because I feel, you know, as a a person my age in my business, I'm neither a co-owner of a microbrewery or I don't have my own podcast. And those are the two (laughs) benchmarks that has to change. <laughs> um, but uh, hey, is there? Yeah, I know you're asking us these questions, but just rattle off the number of major uh, Neil Simon characters that you have played, even though you're not the age of these people. Well, maybe one of them you were. Well, the, uh, like uh, 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 Eugene yeah. was one. Eugene uh, Jerome for. And, uh, and, and who? What show was that? That uh, was a uh, uh, Brighton Beach Brighton and Beach. Uh, yeah. Biloxi Blues. Because uh, it's funny when we did. When we did a uh, Brighton Beach, it was um, I was around um, how old was I then? I, uh, Nineteen or so, and Eugene was was I think fifteen or so. Which I mean, like you know, obviously it, there's a few years there, but then uh, Bloxy Blues takes place about two years later, and then I was, and then we did that two years later. So it was kind of like you know, like 
kind of, uh, 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 kind of funny how that worked where it like lined up to where, okay, you know, uh, Bloxy Blues is two years later. Now I'm two years older, you know, and then Broadway Bound, of course, that's the, the, the third one in, in the trilogy. Hopefully we get to do that someday. Um, but, uh, and then of course, Felix in the odd couple, which is probably my favorite one having to, uh, I'm, I'm like, you know, that's one of the most well-known plays ever really. And um and Norm, they, Foster, Norm Foster says that's the best the best comedy best ever. play best play well, really yeah, hands Art, down Art, Art Kearney did the on Broadway Art Kearney d- debuted the role he wasn't in the film but he uh, yeah we got a story we no absolutely I, I did a film I did a I did a movie with Art Kearney wow because oh. Art Kearney, but I did it, I had two scenes with him that's all but one of them we were sitting in a thing it was uh, it was a long time ago we were sitting in a thing play, playing poker with some guys. And I was right beside Eric Carney. And, and the best memory I have of, of that experience was they had a lighting stand in for him. For the rest of us, they didn't. But for him, they had a lighting stand. They said, OK, well, we've got a light. They did the blocking. Now we've got a light. You want to go to your trailer? He said, no, you know, I'm comfortable just here. Everybody left. And I had to sit there anyways. It was a two shot, the two of us. So, uh, God, we had about 15 or 20 minutes just to shoot the breeze. And, and my dad was so thrilled. That I, my dad said, what do you have to say? I said, well, you know, he's a Yankees fan. He lives in Connecticut and, you know, he just kind of like, he, he, he said to me, he said, so where do you make your home, son? I said, well, I live right here in Toronto. He said, oh yeah, I live in Connecticut. And he was just, just talking about stuff, you know, lovely the, guy. Oh, wow. Um, uh, oh crap. I said we a brain fart. Sorry about that. Talking about, you're talking about the odd couple. You were talking about the yeah. Odd no, <laughs> my brain just farted for a second. I was like, oh, oh, wait, where were we again? I was. <laughs> so many great stories. I love this. That's why you guys need 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 to have a podcast of the three of us just shooting the oh. shit about theater. That would that would be so much fun. I'd pay to see that. Um, the odd couple. They actually turned that uh, into a movie as well, too. And uh, they also did a sequel to that as well. Have you guys seen the sequel or have you guys ever? No, I saw an attempt at a sitcom with what's his name from Friends. Um, um, oh, I, right. just think, I just don't think it, it went anywhere. Uh, but don't went anywhere. The show with Tony Randall and uh, yeah. Clinton there. That yeah. Oh, yeah, that was classic. That, yeah. yeah, that was a good one. Was... I mean, like, what's your guys' opinion on, like, uh, you know, if you're going to do a sequel to a show or a movie or whatever, um, what would you consider to be, like, essential to make it superior to the original i mean like you know if you're i mean i mean like something like you know um uh what's a good what's a good example of a movie like um, i I could tell you this we're at the 50th anniversary of the godfather this week yes oh my god yes i saw that on twitter made 1972 and there's an example i can think of a couple of examples of sequels that are better than the original when the original was fantastic and i could say i mean the godfather's terrific film but i think godfather 2 is even even better <laughs> better film and i would say the same thing about toy story toy story which I, I the first one was fantastic and toy story 2 i think was even more fantastic than the fantastic first one and then but, that just got better and better with three and four and um but uh, two would have to be better than the original we know that going forward which, which one bingo, bingo night, night two, two would have bingo to be better than the original yes i don't think It'll be called Bingo Bingo Night. Yes, Bingo Bingo Night. <laughs> That's right. Yes. The night after Bingo. I know. I like movies with food in them. Now, Big Night was one, and uh, I, I like movies when there's where there's food. Where there's food. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Ever watched the movie Sausage Party on Netflix? No. no, no. Oh yeah. Oh geez. God no. <laughs> no. Oh god. 
<laughs> that's quite uh, uh, I did a, I did, a, I did a, in my very very short film career which was very short um I did a um a scene with the guy now you'd be too young to know this Frankie but there's a a guy whose routine was he always played drunk Foster Brooks his name was and oh, okay he'd, he'd be on the Johnny Carson show and he played a really good drunk so he I had this scene with this guy it wasn't the longest scene so we rehearsed it and it was just painted like a regular guy and I thought here's this guy he's a really he's actually a really good actor so it was time to shoot the scene and he reverts right back to the drunk. And I couldn't believe it. Like, oh my God, what's this guy doing? And that's what he was hired for, clearly, right? No, absolutely. Well, I mean, like sometimes it's so hard to get out of that mind space. So, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that's always the- but Everybody's known for something, I guess. Yeah, oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Marshall, is talk? there anything that comes to mind like for like sequels and stuff like that, that you would deem essential if you were going to uh, uh, doing a sequel or like, is there yeah, any I mean, movies in particular that you can it think doesn't of? Matter. It, it, it doesn't matter how good it is. It has to, it has to be better than the first one or people will deem it because it's like, if you've never seen the Godfather, you know, that, that whole notion of exposing the mafia and this whole, these families or whatever, the novelty and impact of that first movie was so tremendous that there's no way a sequel would be considered good unless it was better. And that's the issue um, because you always, it's it's like people who read the book, they say, well, you know, the movie is, the, and yes. Boy, Marsha, you're, you're so right. And when you think about that franchise, Godfather 3 was widely considered a disaster and yeah. terrible because it wasn't better than Godfather 2. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not that bad a movie, but it's considered awful. If it, if it had come out Godfather 3 without those other two movies, it would have been a successful venture. But it must be better than the first. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. No matter what you do, it, uh, uh, you always want to want to try to um, uh, try to keep on outdoing yourself kind of thing. Like, 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 uh, you know what I mean? Like um, one for like me. Porky's 2 was way better than Porky's 1. <laughs> but Oddball, Oddball 2. Oddball two is not as good as oddballs <laughs> no, with, that, with no, the Foster no, no. Brooks. Screwballs, screwballs, screwballs. Oh, screwballs. Okay. screwballs was one was called oddballs and one was called screwballs. We're talking about the Donnie Bowes canon of of uh, of films here, which he'll be. It was screwballs, the one that I did with Foster Brooks. Okay. That okay. Was that one. Oh, it's, oh it's no. the balls. Now, Donnie, I get, I get those balls movies mixed yeah, up. Yeah. Now, but, <laughs> balls. Now, wasn't Michael McDonald and Mike yes, McDonald, the stand-up comedian who just passed away? Yeah, he was in that one. The, the one. Oddball. Oh my God! Yes, he passed away. I almost forgot about that. Yeah. I used to love him on Just for Laughs and all that. He was always. We, we had good. him at the Hubcap Comedy Festival at least three times. Uh, Funny in man. Our early years, yeah, and we did a tour with him all through Atlantic Canada. Great guy. Yeah, there was another. There, there was another comedian. I don't know from Quebec, a Marshall that died in his sleep a couple of months ago. Right? You you knew who that was, right? Who Bob Saget. No, uh, him. Well, no, actually him. That's right. But another guy. Remember? Yeah, he, no. This part of my house. Whoa. Yeah. He's from Quebec, I think, or somewhere. Yeah, we're at an age now where it's about all these of Ames, yeah. people who yeah. passed away. But um, I think Donnie, we should end it perhaps on your, you know, you talk about like you're making a living, but because Patricia said you should talk about this. Uh, my wife, when we went to Toronto to see you in Old Calcutta. Which you had you had told your your folks in Miramichi that it was a musical about Gandhi. That's right. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, that was the movie. Yeah. Got to hear about this. <laughs> the old Calcutta was this uh, 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 show that opened in the West End of um, 
England in the 60s or 70s. And uh, it's not a very good play at all, but it, it, it uh, everybody was fascinated with it. all these uh, comedic writers doing monologues and stuff. It was called Old Calcutta. And um, so there was a theater in Toronto. They did a, a two-year run of it. Ron Gabriel actually played the role and then he left the show. I took over from Ron Gabriel. It was a show at one particular point, everybody in the show is naked. <laughs> it, it, you had to, but you had to kind of be there to kind of you know it sounds like one thing appreciate but, uh, it so yeah it's it's a well-known review frankie about uh uh it was actually was it uh who who it was a series of things written by different people oh, john, yeah. lennon, john, lennon. john lennon pfeiffer and well, john lennon all the jules pfeiffer all the, the jules pfeiffer the guy that did the monologues that you did uh uh frankie he he wrote pieces too but it was oh, a, yeah so it was famous oh, too. okay and yeah. when and I, and and at some point it came up, Donnie, Donnie and I were talking about it over the past couple of days. I said, "Well, that's something we could talk about on the podcast, Marshall." Just like you're nipping at the heels of, I said, uh, "We could say, well, here's what we all had in common." I said, uh, "I could say because I did a play around the same time. I did a play at the St. Lawrence Center called Privates on Parade that I had a couple of nude scenes in." So I said, "We've all had the experience of working nude." I said, "Maybe Marshall will will do one of the Lucien shows. Maybe he's got plans to do some nudity in that, and he can." And, we could all we'll all have that in common. But Marcia, when you brought up Equus a moment ago, I thought, oh my God, you did Equus. You brought but then you were one of the horses because I think there's quite a, there quite is, a yeah. that was the first big nude scene in a play. And yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. And that was the time that Woodstock, New Brunswick passed a motion at council to never allow Theater New Brunswick to come to Woodstock ever again. Oh geez. <laughs> and they did. Hey, I mean, how could you enforce that, right? <laughs> they they passed a, a a motion to say we will disallow because there was a nudity in a very and the nudity made that play better like it wasn't gratuitous in any way, but yet there was a, a little community in New Brunswick that happily welcomed the Bill Lynch shows every summer, which was yeah. this traveling midway the where there's tea. this come on in guys at the back room when all these farmers would go and watch these strip teas, you know, and yeah. there'd be oh, a guy oh. going come on in she walks she talks she talks <laughs> come on it was all fun yeah. You know, it's interesting how when you think about it, I think back to Privates on Parade, it, it opened with this whole scene of it, it's sort of like World War II Southeast Asia, and it was meant to be a real sort of shock kind of uh, comedy thing. And and uh, it opened with, like, I think there was eight of us on stage that were all naked in this army barracks thing and whatnot. And we thought it's going to be very interesting to see what we do this play, what the audience reaction to this is going to be and the audiences that were like the night audiences in toronto the sort of so-called quote-unquote sophisticates that were coming to see this thing because it was the thing to do and blah 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 and you'd hear this kind of murmur go through of of um the audience sort of oh yeah this is the nude scene they talked about or whatever and there was another one in the second act that was you know it's oh yeah this is the nude you could sort of feel it bristle through the wednesday blue rinse matinees with the old ladies coming on the wednesdays nothing they just sat like they're totally interested in story they did <laughs> it was just like they just watched the yeah. story it was good the story was carrying them along and they just followed along and it was yeah, it, was it, was. it was the same with calcutta it, it when the sound was on at the uh, half hour you could the audience was so excited because they're going to see this new show well at one particular point at the beginning like everybody is kind of for a while and then then the only people that were nude for the rest of that show are the dancers and the good looking people. I was the guy who was playing all the comic parts. And I thought, okay, once this first number is over, guys, I get to put my clothes on and I get all the good scenes. So <laughs> like, good luck. Because the audience after the first one was like, 
oh yeah, well, I hope there's going to be something more interesting than this. Everybody's seen somebody naked before, right? So it, then it became about people wanting to hear this. some entertaining stuff, right? Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> so there could definitely be a whole show just about about all of your guys resumes and stories and uh, all that stuff oh god it was on we could even do a play here with for corkin entertainment just just (laughs) well at one point during the summer all three of us are going to be here at this theater and uh there's different that all the time there we go we'll 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 have to get something going you'll have to get something going (laughs) so yeah i think that so yeah that that'll probably do it for the show today um so i just want to thank my guests uh jesse collins uh marshall button and my uncle donnie bose uh do you guys have any final words to say um where where can people see you guys next where can uh you you know what's what's next for you guys Uh, uh this season well, our theater, we did a, a fall season last year, a short fall season, um, and uh, 10,000 people came through with all the protocols. It was tough as hell, but it was <laughs> fine. This year, we're hoping to have a regular season from May to December. We're just waiting to see what protocols we're going to drop or what we're going to do to make audiences feel comfortable about coming back. But I'm telling you, people coming back to see live theater, we had auditions a couple of weeks ago, auditioning actors, and they were just so happy to be able to do something live, uh, safely, but live. So um, I'm looking forward to a, a season that's kind of normal and that everybody's going to be entertained. And I can't, I can't wait. I'm designing sets right now for, for three shows. The first, the first thing I've got coming up is a world premiere of a Norm Foster play called Doris and Ivy in the Home at Donnie's Theater, which I can't wait to do. We've got a lovely cast for, and then the uh, one and only Marshall Button is going to be working with me on a, on a, on a play called come down from up river where we're giving him a massive, a massive actor stretch where we're having him play a guy from New Brunswick. Yeah. Oh, from the Miramichi. On the Miramichi. Right. So, well, there we so go. That'll hit home for around Corey, though, so he's yeah. so he's uh he's writing off everything in terms of Canada. Right? He doesn't make a move in New Brunswick now without calling it a tax deductible business expense. It's all <laughs> it's all research from here on in. That's right. But Marshall does have something every so uh any final words there, Marshall? Uh oh, anything just, like uh, you know, where can people you know it sounds like a cliche, but I'm so uh looking forward to this summer not only to be live but working with these two friends you know really good friends and it's that's something where you it's okay to say well i like working on this kind of show but when you are able to put something together that people really dig and they come out in great numbers to see but in the meantime the best thing about it is you get to spend time with and work with people like that that's really what life is all about and, you know, as they say, uh, uh, you know, theater is life, uh, television is furniture. And that's, that's the thing, you're living it for so long. Like, you know, you make a TV show, you find more people see it and it's on, but in theater, we're gonna run this damn show for seven weeks, I think, when it all adds up. So it's, it, it's really about, you know, the coming together of people who uh, will challenge each other and, you know, hopefully push each other to be better than you were the last time you were, but also uh, realize that we only have one trip around this planet and let's try to enjoy this as much as we can. And the fact that our age, we're still able to do this and make good work. Uh, and, and I want to say to you, Frankie, that, you know, it's so great to be spoken to by a person of your age and that we are saying to you, the three of us, God bless what you are doing there and, you know, keep doing what you're doing so that 
someday when we're maybe wheeled into the front row that we get to see you do something and wherever. No, absolutely. And I, and I mean, like, yo, Hey, who knows? I'd love to, to have you guys do a show with me sometime. You know what I mean? Like this is you know, <laughs> like, like, like a Donnie said at the start of the show, it's so hard to get to uh, 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 Miramichi while, uh, while one of my shows is going on, hopefully someday, you know what I mean? Like maybe, you know, the, 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 the universal lines and we're able to do something on stage together, you know, oh, yeah. you never well, know. The time is right for sure. But you're right. Being in the business is almost like being in the army. If you're in a show, you just can't go anywhere. You know what exactly. I mean? Literally, literally. Like that's exactly how it is. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's, yeah, there you go. But one of these days, we're hoping it'll happen. So uh, thank you guys so much for tuning into the show today. Uh, I want to thank my guests again, Jesse, Marshall, and Donnie. Uh, so stay tuned every Tuesday uh, for uh, episode next Tuesday. And uh, until then, this is Frankie and Jesse. There you go. And Marshall, Donnie, uh, signing off. Thank you, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.